good morning, afternoon, evening, midnight, witching hour, dawn, dusk. <laughs> I just keep naming things for three hours. Whatever it is, <laughs> where you are. Yeah, whatever. Welcome to Saints and Witches. That's Liz. That's Sarah. I'm a Catholic. I'm a witch. And marriage is really hard, but we make it work. Some days are really hard. <laughs> Some days I just want to murder you. That's understandable. just want to slit your throat in your sleep. I would let you. <laughs> <laughs> Please help me escape from this hell that is life. <laughs> this mortal coil. <laughs> and we are here today on a very important mission to tell each other a story. Mm-hmm. Um, today we're going to be in Mexico for the first time. We'll see if it's pretty or not. Cause I don't know if it's going to be on my end. I'm going to um, butcher a lot of stuff. Pronunciation wise, you mean? <laughs> yeah. Sarah's going to excel today. No, don't say that. No, because I have a lot of like Aztec words. Okay. I have two Aztec words yeah. and those are the ones I'm confident about it's the normal <laughs> Spanish that terrifies me I see so I'm the opposite so are we gonna be around the same time period uh I'm not technically locked into a time I see. I'm talking about something that is not tied to a specific time but is still being used like today so you're just free balling it I am. Your balls are just <laughs> free. They're out blowing in the wind. <laughs> yes. For all to see. <laughs> um, great. Love that journey. <laughs> I am really excited for this episode. It's a big one, but one that might not be the first to come to your mind. Like it's not a St. Francis of Assisi or like whatever <laughs> other saints. <laughs> Just those other guys. Literally forgot every single saint that there I've ever so heard of. There's so many. You're like yeah. Francis and the other ones. Francis. Um, and then his friends, the others. Look at the smudge writing on your hand. <laughs> um so it's a big one and we're gonna we're gonna be in 16th century Mexico um we're gonna talk about the Spanish conquest of the Aztec empire and we're gonna talk about one of the most famous Marian apparitions of all time so that means Saint Juan Diego and the apparitions of the Virgin of Guadalupe um now I grew up hearing about this story in Sunday school. We talked about it every single year um, in the spring leading up to the May crowning, which is this big parade that all the classes do. And each kid has like a rose and we process out from the school into the garden and we go to the Mary statue and we put a flower crown on her and then like lay all the roses like at the base of the statue. And hopefully the significance of that becomes clear by the end of this story because it is referencing this story. Um, but as I started researching, I realized I didn't know anywhere near all of the like interesting facts about this story. Um, so if you grew up like me and you just have like a vague idea of what happened during these apparitions, um, 
stick around because we're going deep into the original source material. And if you have no idea at all what I'm talking about, that's fine too. Um, Did you, I know you have mentioned going to a couple different Sunday schools before. And so I was curious if you guys ever talked about this. Talked about what? (laughs) One, like St. Juan Diego and Uh, in Mexico and how Mary appeared to him. No, because like I said, it was like the Pentecostal and Baptist and stuff like that. So saints were like so far out of the purview. Oh, I guess that's true. I didn't think about that. Yeah. And I do feel like Catholics have a special place for Mary that not all of the other denominations do, which I just think is really interesting. Yeah, I really only knew her as, uh, you know, the woman who held the baby Jesus in the nativity Christmas scene. (laughs) That was like the iconic role. I was a sheep. I was a sheep. (laughs) You were real low on the totem pole. (laughs) I was just a sheep singing away in a manger with a bunch of cotton glued to my sweatshirt. The good old days. Uh, to be a sheep in the nativity play, the pageant. Um, okay, so my sources, there are four main accounts of this story, which were all like written and published um, around 100 years or more after the events took place. Um, we will be getting into all of them throughout the course of the episode. The apparitions happened in 1531, which was just 10 years after the Spanish conquest. Um, And so the conquistadors led by Cortes renamed the city Mexico City. It was an Aztec name that I am completely blanking on and didn't write down like Tenochtitlan or something that's probably not the gods or whatever yeah that's probably not how how you pronounce it but that's um, what it looks like sure is (laughs) um and nobody could tell me no because I can read um (laughs) yeah they created a monster when they taught me how to read um so it's renamed Mexico City however the first written account of the apparitions like I said wasn't published until 1648 so over 100 years later so already we have quite a bit of distance between the events and their documentation or so it would appear it looks like we've had over 100 years for the story to spread and details to change like a game of telephone And then in the 1660s, the story was republished and reprinted in Spain, which is when the cult really started to grow all over the world. Shortly after that, there are two other main accounts published and circulated, one of which was based on a collection of sworn testimonies about the apparition, which had been taken down earlier that year as part of the application to Rome for liturgical recognition of the event. So I'll talk about that one later. So those are the main sources in this story. What I actually read and what I will be quoting from is a synthesized English version called Historiography of the Apparition of Guadalupe by Daniel J. Castellano. I felt comfortable using this as my main source because I saw it referenced almost everywhere I looked. And after reading it, there were so many direct quotations 
And it was just such a solid analysis that I do think it's a comprehensive one. And it's probably as close as we can get to objective. Um, Obviously, all authors and historians have their own biases, but um, I think this is a good source. In the introduction, Castellano admits that we're going to be relying on a lot of secondhand testimony, a lot of hearsay. Um, but he points out that, like, that's the case in the vast majority of, is that, is that Hannibal? I just saw a streak <laughs> as he bolted across the screen. Yeah, he was sitting over to the side of me doing the butt wiggle thing, and he did <laughs> leap over me again, like a circus ring. So Fun. <laughs> this is just his new afternoon activity. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. That's okay. I enjoyed it. Um. Yeah, so he says just because um, in some cases we only have the oral tradition, that doesn't mean that that tradition isn't representative of the beliefs of a culture or a community. And like he says, um, like if we if we discredit oral tradition as a source for history, guess what? Like we don't know anything about history, <laughs> right? Like that's kind of how historical research works anyway. So um, he criticizes both sides that um, the historians who study this apparition fall under, like both camps. Um, He says that the apologists, meaning the ones who believe that the apparition really did happen, um, those guys are more likely to accept sources that may not be authentic in their like quest to prove that this really did happen. They're going to accept things that they probably shouldn't. Um, And on the other hand, among the skeptics, we see things like the devaluation of witness testimony, um, even as much as like character assassination by pointing out like, oh, this guy couldn't even read or like stuff like that. Um, And they might even say things like this witness is just an Indian, just an Aztec, like, so he doesn't know how to distinguish mythology from real life, like, It's very condescending, um, sometimes blatantly racist. So serious issues on both sides. Um, So what the heck am I even talking about? Who was Juan Diego? Who is Our Lady of Guadalupe? And what even happened? I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to tell the basic narrative of events. And all versions of the story include these events. And I'm paraphrasing, I'm not going to directly quote because this is a synthesis of all of them. So um, it would be weird to pick one quote from one and then one quote from another when they are pretty distinct. But so this is the basic narrative. On a Saturday morning in December 1531, 10 years after the conquest of Mexico, a poor Indian named Juan Diego was on his way to the church in (laughs) the one I didn't look up, Tlateloco, not sure. Um, It was a predominantly Indian suburb of Mexico City and had been absorbed into the city during the conquest, I believe, or around that time. So Juan Diego regularly went to church there to hang out with the Franciscans. He was very devout. He was a widower. His wife had died just two years prior to the beginning of this story. And they had had a chaste marriage because they had listened to some Franciscan sermons. And so that's what they believed 
they were called to do, or at least what her name was. His wife's name was Maria Lucia. At at least that's what (laughs) she told him they were called to do. Called to not do. (laughs) Called to not do. Called to not partake in um, the desires of the flesh um, or sleep in the same bed or look at each other or whatever. I would definitely say that God told me that that had to happen. Honestly, I had to get married. Honestly, I bet the Franciscans like women loved when the Franciscans would come to town. (laughs) They'd be like, hey, honey, let's go see the sermon date night. (laughs) The Franciscans (laughs) are like, never have sex. And the wife's like, you know, I had a spiritual experience during that sermon. I think Um, these guys are on to something. (laughs) Right, exactly. So all of that is to say they had no children. And by the way, Juan Diego, as an indigenous man, a Chichimec peasant, was originally named Kuautlatotzing. That's my best guess. I got lucky in some cases because this story is so widely known that some places had like phonetic spelling, which is like such a godsend that we never get. Um, So that was his original name. And I believe he took the name Juan Diego when he was baptized. It's technically the Spanish version of John James, which I was like, how do we go from James to Diego? And I found out that it's actually from James to Santiago, which is the city where St. James's shrine is. So we go from James to Santiago to St. Tiago to Diego. So that's how we got Juan Diego. It's really John James. It's a lot of loops. (laughs) It's a loop the loop. Um, yes. So on Juan Diego's way to the church that Saturday morning, he passed by the hill of Tepeyac. By the hill, he heard a, quote, symphony of sweet heavenly song. I think that's my one tiny little quote. It's from the first version, the first published account of the story. He hears a, a symphony of sweet heavenly song, and he heard his name being called. At the top of the hill, he saw a lady who identified herself as the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God. The lady told Juan Diego to build her a temple or shrine on that hill and promised to help and protect all who visited it. And then she sent him off to the bishop's palace to deliver her message. So he goes to the bishop's palace. This bishop was the first bishop of Mexico and would soon become the first archbishop. He was a Franciscan priest named Juan de Sumaraga. So Juan Diego is begging to be let in the palace and the guards are like, who is this guy? Who is this scraggly peasant? Um, Finally, they give in because he is so desperate and he has an audience with the bishop and tells him everything that the lady said to him. The bishop's like, "Mm, I don't know if I believe you, but that sounds interesting. Why don't you come back another time and we will discuss it later, like kind of trying to get rid of him. So he leaves feeling kind of frustrated, like, damn, he didn't believe me, but like, I know what I saw. Like, I don't think I'm crazy. So he goes back to the hill of Tepeyac and guess what? The lady appears again. And she's like, hey, how's the the shrine building coming? Where's my shrine? And Juan Diego is like, look, no disrespect to you, my lady. But it was kind of dumb to pick me (laughs) to go spread this message. Like, I'm nobody. So no one's ever going to believe me. 
And if you appear to somebody else with more power and influence, like you could appear to the bishop and then like he, he wouldn't be able to say no. Um, so that's what you should do if you really want to get this shrine built. And the lady says, no, I didn't make a mistake. I want you and only you to convince the bishop to get this done. So like put on your big boy pants, like take out your tampon, like let's get some shrine building done. So Juan Diego's like, okay, beautiful lady, I will try again. The next morning is Sunday, so he goes to mass and then goes back to the bishop's palace, and they're like, this guy again. Um, But they do let him in, and he speaks to the bishop again, and this time they talk for a really long time. The bishop has a lot of questions. It's like an interrogation but he's still skeptical. So he declares that no, he's not going to act on this request without himself seeing some special sign or proof that these messages are coming from the Virgin Mary. And when Juan Diego leaves the palace again, super frustrated and sad, the bishop calls over his servants and is like, hey, I want you to follow this guy. I can't tell if he's crazy or what's going on. So the servants follow Juan Diego, but they lose track of him once he leaves the main part of the city. And so, like, I guess they were not the right ones for the job. <laughs> like, that's all it says about that. Like, well, they tried to follow him, but they couldn't. <laughs> like, it has no significance. <laughs> it's like, why was that even in there? I don't know. Um, so he goes back to the hill and he tells the lady that the bishop wants a special sign from her. And she's like, men. Okay, he wants a sign. Come back tomorrow and I'll give you a sign to bring to the bishop. But the next morning, Juan Diego doesn't go to the hill because he's gotten the message that his uncle, Juan Bernardino, is gravely ill. So instead, he goes to take care of his uncle and it's not looking good. He has, I believe, some type of hemorrhagic fever. I don't know if it still exists, but... Um, I forgot to write down the Aztec word for it, Um, but it was common in the area at the time. And um, so it's not looking good for his uncle. And so early the following morning, so this is Tuesday now, Juan Diego goes out to find a priest to hear his uncle's last confession. On his way, he has to pass by the hill where the lady has been appearing to him. And he's like, oh, I didn't do my homework. <laughs> um, so he's like, here's what I'll do. I'll go around the hill instead of like taking the shortcut over the hill like he usually does. He's like, I'll just go around and then she'll never know. Um, so he's walking around. She shows up. She's like, hey, what you doing? <laughs> How's it going? How's the shrine coming? Um, and he's like, oh, my God probably like super freaked out. He's like, look, I'm incredibly sorry. I haven't been doing what you told me. My uncle is dying and I just need a priest to hear his confession. And then tomorrow I'll be back and I'll do whatever you want me to do. The lady is not upset with Juan Diego. She says she understands and she assures him that he should not worry about his uncle dying. She says that even now, right at that moment, his uncle has recovered. And he trusts her. He says, man, that is a relief. So where is my sign to bring to the bishop for you? Um, So the lady directs him to climb to the top of the hill 
and there he will find flowers to pick. Um, now this hill is like, it's not like a, a nice little like meadow, like it's a rocky outcropping, like no grass. I'm and beginning in, to think she just wants him to climb this hill for exercise <laughs> over and over. She's just some fitness coach. <laughs> She's a registered dietitian. <laughs> She's like, look, up and down, up and down. He's like, I'm fucking exhausted. I only ate a crust of bread this week. He tried to go around the hill. She got pissed off. She's like, go climb the hill. <laughs> She's his Fitbit. Yep. She's like, nope, keep moving. Don't sit down. Um, <laughs> could be. Could be we finally cracked the code on this <laughs> centuries-old <laughs> legend. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's no grass. It's just like a rock rocky hill and in the 16th century apparently mexican winters were much colder i didn't look very hard into the actual climate change data but i do remember learning that mexico city is one of like the hottest places in the world and like the the trend of climate change there has been like particularly alarming like shockingly like a shocking increase um so it used to be much colder um, and this is December. It's the dead of winter. So it's obviously too cold for flowers. And yet the hill is just completely covered with them. Um, different authors of the different accounts describe them differently. Like some say they're like jewels. Like that is a very moving passage in most of the accounts. Um, so Juan Diego cuts the flowers and gathers them into his tilma, which I guess is a type of cloak that um, pre-conquest Aztec men would wear, which had like an apron on the front of it, like a kangaroo pouch, um, super nifty. So he puts the flowers in there and the lady blesses the flowers and sends him off to show them to the bishop. Um, so now the third time he tries to see the bishop, the guards are like, absolutely not. <laughs> um, they are very concerned about his cloak. Like he's clearly hiding something in his cloak. And they're like, um, I don't think we can let you in to see the bishop. Like, is it a weapon in there? Like, what are you doing? Like, are you crazy or what? I got to respect that though. Like this weird dude keeps showing up saying that he's <laughs> seeing people and now he's concealing something under his cloak. <laughs> yeah. But finally they're like, you know what? Go ahead on in. We're we don't bored. like the bishop that much. <laughs> he's not our favorite. We're ready for a new one. It's um, been a long Saturday. <laughs> exactly. They're like, you know, I'm over it. It's above my pay grade. So finally they let him in and Juan Diego tells the bishop everything. And again, the bishop is like, that's nice, but I still need real proof. And so Juan Diego opens up the pouch on the tilma and, and the, flashes the bishop. <laughs> and just no underwear, just <laughs> shockingly pale genitalia. <laughs> And the bishop is like, oh, my God, I'm not <laughs> mad about it. No, <laughs> don't be gross. You pagans. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, <laughs> you ruined like the best part, like the most like touching, miraculous part of the story. I don't do touching. Mm. That's what the bishop said. 
I don't do touching. Touching's extra. Um, no, he does not flash the bishop. That would be rather alarming. He, um, so all the flowers come just cascading out of the cloak. And as they, as the flowers drop and Juan is holding up like the end of the cloak, the two men see an image of the Virgin Mary imprinted on the cloak. And so the bishop immediately like kneels in reference, in reference, in reverence. Um, And Juan Diego is like, hmm, that's neat. (laughs) I wonder how that got there. Like he doesn't have a clue. Um, So the bishop tells Juan Diego that he believes that this is a miracle and he takes the cloak to put in the chapel. So the bishop now fully believes Juan Diego. He's all in. The following day, Juan Diego leads the bishop to the hill where the lady had asked for the shrine to be built. And then Juan Diego's like, look, you believe me. That's great. Now, do I have your permission to go see my uncle? Because he was on his deathbed and the lady said he'd been cured, but I haven't gone and seen for myself and I'm really worried. So the bishop is like, yeah, I'll go with you and we'll see together. Um, And they find Juan Bernardino. 100% healthy. He's like, yeah, it was so weird. You left to go find a priest. And then a little while later, this lady showed up and she told me that the bishop would be coming and that I should tell him that the Virgin Mary of Guadalupe healed me. And because of all this evidence, the bishop agreed to have the shrine to Our Lady of Guadalupe built on the hill at Tepeyac. Eventually, the image imprinted on Juan Diego's cloak was transferred to the new shrine in a procession led by the bishop, and the cloak remains there to to this day, literally. Oh my god, my leg is fully asleep. So that is like the bare bones narrative containing the elements that all the major traditional accounts agree on. But the historiography then goes into the variations between the stories and into the historical sources that form like the basis of the narratives. Um, So the big question that historians and scholars who study this event have is, did the cult of Our Lady of Guadalupe and the oral tradition of this event exist in the 16th century when the apparition was said to have happened? Or was the story a 17th century invention? Because remember, the first account isn't published until over 100 years later. Um, So we will be examining that. So the first account written by Father Miguel Sanchez, who was a Mexican-born Spanish priest, has a twofold purpose. The first purpose is obviously to tell the story of what happened. Um, There are a few things we have to keep in mind when we think about the historical accuracy of um, the Sanchez account. Number one, (laughs) part one, um, Father Sanchez doesn't have access to any physical source material. Either this story was never written down at all, or it's also very possible that any written records in the archives were destroyed. Um, There were often paper shortages, so like... You know how you write your grocery list on the back of like someone's old like photograph, like that kind of thing. Um, So something like that could have happened. Um, So Sanchez fully admits relying on what Castellano calls the universality of the popular legend. So he's basically like, everybody knows this story. I don't need to cite any sources. 
Um, the other big thing we have to keep in mind is that Father Sanchez did not speak Nahuatl. I think that's how you pronounce it. That's like the indigenous language of the area. So because he didn't speak the language, he didn't interview any indigenous people about this event, only Spanish people. So that sucks. He's good like, enough. <laughs> good enough. Exactly. <laughs> Super irresponsible. Um, anyway, in this account, we have the basic story of the, the event, but the main point actually of the book is an analysis of the apparition through the lens of the book of Revelation, because Sanchez believed that the apparition of Our Lady of Guadalupe was literally the fulfillment of a prophecy in the book of Revelation. So the chapter that he references is Revelation chapter 12. And it begins like this. You might have heard some of this stuff before. I don't know. Um, Chapter 12 says, a great sign appeared in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was with child and wailed aloud in pain as she labored to give birth. Then another sign appeared in the sky. It was a huge red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns, and on its head were seven diadems. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in the sky and hurled them down to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman about to give birth to devour her child. My cat is named Hannibal, and you ask me if I know this. Like, this is the red dragon, Francis Dollarhide, like all of that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the book of Revelation is fucking baller. And like, Mm -hmm. it's no wonder it's in literally all kinds of like pop culture, because stuff like that is just so cool. And like Blake's paintings. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Blake's Mm -hmm. apocalypse well the book of revelation is actually actually it should be called the book of apocalypse like that's literally what it means um and that's what it was first called in the greek it was called apocalypsis i think so yeah these are the end times um so sanchez makes these comparisons not just comparisons of like the physical image of the apparition with the woman in revelation although they do look similar like stars and sun and moon and stuff like that um but he also draws parallels between the two stories so for example he says okay the apparition appeared to a man named juan and The vision that inspired the book of Revelation, the book of Apocalypse, appeared to a man named John. Like, what a winky dink. No way. (laughs) Yeah, it literally could be just a coincidence. Like, that. It's not like those are two of the most popular names or anything. (laughs) Literally, like, the number one most popular name in the entire world. Um, Mm -hmm. John, yes. Uh, Yeah, there's that. Um, But wait, there's more. Um, He says that the woman in Revelation is clothed with the sun. Well, Sanchez says, okay, the woman, that's referring to Mexico, like to New Spain. It's referring to like the sun there and the climate because everybody knows it's like so, so hot. And there's no sun anywhere else. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, exactly. Uh, You're not wrong. Um, And then it says the woman has the moon under her feet. And Sanchez is like, well, obviously that refers to the fact that Mexico City was actually built on a lake. (laughs) I think a lot of cities were. (laughs) Also, like, hmm, how'd you get there? But apparently it's because like moon equals water, sun equals fire. 
like that would have been just commonly accepted like of course the moon is water which like I guess if you look at like imagery like tarot you could see like the moon card is full of all these like aquatic creatures it's just kind of like the depths and like the subconscious and stuff I don't know it's more of like the psychic emotions and that's all of like your water signs and right. uh, planet Pluto and all that stuff. So. Right, exactly. So that's what he thinks it refers to. And so then we see the woman giving birth in Revelation. That is the establishment of the church in Mexico. And the dragon is like the evils of idolatry that kind of like lay in wait to attack the newborn Mexican church. That's his thesis. He kind of sounds like my junior high English teacher with like the blue curtains and a story. (laughs) (laughs) They represent depression. Yeah, this is indicative of postpartum depression. It's like, or (laughs) the curtains are blue. (laughs) And the author paid no attention to it and just picked a color. Yep, that's usually what happens. Um, So yeah, it's an awkward fit at times like the comparisons do feel a bit forced um so castellano who wrote the uh synthesized historiography he believes that the awkwardness is actually a sign that father sanchez knew all of the facts of the event very well and that these facts were immovable or like so well established in tradition that they could not be changed at all because everybody would be like what the fuck this isn't what happened so what Sanchez was doing was maybe just looking for a story that could possibly fit the facts of the event so Castellano says that wherever the fit seems the most awkward that's when we can be sure that the events are as close to the truth as possible which I thought was a really interesting way of looking at it that I wouldn't have considered. I would have been like, well, that doesn't match. Throw it out. You know, it makes sense. Yeah, I think so too. So after he tells that story, which is interspersed with these comparisons, Sanchez relates seven miracles, which have been attributed to our lady of Guadalupe. They're mostly healings, particularly healings of indigenous people from injuries or plague There are also a few miracles associated with light, like candles lighting up on their own or a lamp staying lit in a strong wind. Um, Finally, the seventh miracle is the entire city being saved from a huge flood where the water just kind of miraculously receded. Um, So there are a few patterns in the list. We have like Our Lady miraculously healing both indigenous people and colonizers. meaning like they're somehow equal in her eyes. Um, She is bringing light to the city, figuratively and literally, and she is protecting this particular city from destruction, plague, death, etc. So very place-based and very much about like peace and integration among colonizers and colonized. Um, So now account two... So leaving behind the Revelation one, account two of the apparition, which was written by Luis Lasso de la Vega, who was the vicar of the Guadalupe Shrine and an admirer of Father Sanchez. 
Um, De La Vega published his own account just a year after Sanchez's. And unlike Sanchez's, De La Vega's account was written in Nahuatl, the language that the indigenous people spoke. He was fluent in the language. So it would be kind of expected that this account would merely be a Nahuatl translation of Sanchez's account, but it's not at all. It doesn't claim to be, it doesn't cite that account, it doesn't cite any sources. Um, and the introduction, <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny, the introduction makes it seem like he's the first one ever to tell the story. <laughs> and Father Sanchez is like, what the fuck? <laughs> I'll just go fuck myself, I guess. Um, <laughs> he was yeah, fully I... expecting a translation of his work, and that's what he opens the book to. Know. Well, I mean, he can't read it, so <laughs> how's, he, how's he ever going to know? <laughs> Other guys standing over his shoulder. This is absolutely a translation of your work. That's what it says. <laughs> Meanwhile, it's like pointing all, out all the flaws in his work and saying it's terrible and stuff. Sanchez no, it... is showing it to everybody. He's so proud. <laughs> and the indigenous people are like, hmm, hmm, hmm. <laughs> Should we tell him? No. I'm not going to tell him. <laughs> that would be funny. Um, no, I don't think it does that. It doesn't mention that work at all. So, um, But what it does do is... I completely lost my place. It's fine. So here are just a few details that I really liked um, in terms of differences between the first two accounts. So in Sanchez's account, um, his description of the very first apparition to Juan Diego, he says that Our Lady's appearance is like heralded by music. And this music is described using European musical terms like symphony. Um, but in De La Vega's account, this is changed to be the sound of birds singing. And not just any birds, but birds native to the area, New World birds. Um, small detail, but I like that. Um, directly after that, De La Vega has Juan Diego say, quote, Where am I? Perhaps the place beyond of which our ancestors spoke. The land of flowers, of maize, of our flesh, of our sustenance. Perhaps heaven? So these are clearly like indigenous visions of like quote-unquote heaven like not the christian heaven of like mm -hmm. angels and archangels and trumpets or whatever um no it's like flowers and corn i like that that's how he talks to himself when he's alone though <laughs> <laughs> like this soliloquy <laughs> where might i be <laughs> where <laughs> might i have have i found myself myself at the moment <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, yes, the land of the ancestors. <laughs> the lady's like, what the fuck? I picked the wrong one. Um, so all the dialogue in the Nahuatl account contains Nahuatl idioms and ways of speaking. So, for example, instead of Our Lady saying, um, Sun Juan, where are you going? Like she said in the Sanchez account, um, she calls him Little Juan, the smallest of my sons. Um, and Juan calls her my lady and my little girl. So these like multiple, um, what are they called? Little nicknames, diminutives, um, multiple of those in one sentence is like a hallmark of the language. Um, as far as miracles, this account doubles the amount found in the earlier account most of the added miracles take place at the actual shrine, which would make sense considering the author was the vicar of the shrine. So he's like 
listen, I'm on ground zero. I see this shit all day, all day. Um, <laughs> I don't know. And the source ends with a biography of Juan Diego after the apparitions, which I will summarize. Um, basically, after all this shit goes down, Juan Diego asks the bishop if he can move closer to the shrine. And the bishop agrees, so he moves into a tiny house adjoining the shrine, and he abandons his village and gives his old house and his land to his uncle. I thought you were going to say his family. And he, he abandons, abandons his family. No, he doesn't have one, remember? <laughs> uh, he had the guy who was sick and then not sick. Yeah, he. so he gives his uncle his house and his land. Is that the only family he has? I think so. That's the only family that's mentioned because his wife's dead and they didn't have any kids. Where are his parents? Probably dead, dude. Probably (laughs) died of diarrhea or something. No siblings, no cousins, no nothing. Hey, look, I don't make the rules here. I just, I'm imagining (laughs) that he has all of these things and he's just like, I'm going to go live by a shrine now. Sayonara. It wouldn't be the first time that a saint did that. They are always just saying like, fuck you to their families and jumping on a train or. I want a story about the family reunion of these people talking about the weird cousin who saw a vision of somebody and it just fucked off forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're like, oh man, this is going to be a weird like family potluck. Um, he shows up. He doesn't have any food. He was just no. hoping to get some food because he hasn't eaten <laughs> like seven days. <laughs> he looks homeless. He's got no cloak. He, I bet he looked fully homeless, like like a, a street person. <laughs> um, I don't know. What's the word? Homeless. Why did I invent vagrant. something else? A vagrant. Yeah. A ragamuffin. <laughs> Um, so he, he abandons his family. Um, he gives his house and his land to his uncle. Um, and then he serves at the shrine for 16 years. And in 1548, our lady appeared to him one last time to tell him that his place in heaven had been prepared and it was time for him to go. So, okay. Source three, and we're nearing the end because source four, I'm not going to talk about barely at all. I'll come back to it. So source three was written by the priest Luis Becerra Tanco, which was, and it was written in 1666. And this account really tried to establish the historical basis of the Guadalupe tradition. Um, And this is the one I mentioned at the beginning that synthesizes all the different witness reports in the liturgical inquiry. So it's much more source-based, even if the sources are just like, oh, my grandpa told me this when I was a little kid, which is like what most of them say, because nobody was alive. Um, So this account draws from not only De La Vega and Sanchez, but also from the inquiry and the author, this author can speak Nahuatl, And it draws from these indigenous pictographic records, which the previous two authors did not cite. I don't know why. I don't know if they didn't have access to them, Um, because this is about 20 years after those two were published. So, like, maybe they were discovered or something. I'm not sure. Um, So the style of this third account is much different than the styles of the previous two. The author leaves out a lot of the theologizing that Sanchez does, and he leaves out the flowery language in De La Vega's account. 
And he claims that his unadorned style is closer to the style of 16th century indigenous storytelling. The author then gives us an explanation for the name Guadalupe, which we haven't seen in prior sources. Um, and really, like, there's no there's no place at the time of the apparition called Guadalupe. Like, why is it named this? Why did she call herself that? It's not, like, based on an established town or anything. Um so he says that the tradition tells us that Juan Bernardino heard the name from the apparition herself, but an Indian would not have been able to pronounce the name because their language lacks the G and D sounds. So like, why would she call herself a name that they couldn't pronounce? Um, so even in Becerra, the author's own time, indigenous people who didn't speak Spanish um, pronounce the name as Tecuatalope, I think. So Becerra gives his opinion, which is that since neither the indigenous people nor the Spanish conquerors could pronounce each other's languages properly, the name Guadalupe likely came about through a mishearing of a native name by the Spanish. And then he gives us some examples of like other ways that the Spanish have completely butchered the native language and like the butchering has stuck because they're the ones keeping the records. Um, so that's probably where the name comes from. And then we get a bunch of what he calls anotaciones, annotations, some historical notes. He makes a pretty good point as to why no written records exist from the time of the apparition. Um, there was no archive. There was no office where an archive could exist. There was no church where an office could exist. <laughs> um, it was quite literally the frontier, like the Wild West, but in Mexico. <laughs> um, and then he gives us his qualifications. He grew up speaking Spanish and Nahuatl. He was a lecturer at Real Universidad or Royal University in Mexico. And his focus of research was native culture. Um, and Castellano points out that because of these qualifications and because of his proximity and time to the apparitions, he's probably the best source that we have, better even than modern scholars, because he didn't have to guess how to interpret everything. Like he literally lived in the culture. Um, so then the author jumps into an, an analysis of the his, historicity, I think that's the word, of the apparition story. He tells us that there are two main ways that indigenous Mexican or Aztec people kept their records of important events. There were records, they just don't resemble our like European style records. So the first way that they kept them was through pictures painted on a type of coarse paper or animal skin. And the second was in the songs that the priests sang, which were passed down through generations. They were taught to the children because the children had the best memories. And then they were just kind of constantly like memorized and reinforced and passed on. And he says that these forms of record are just as valuable and useful as written European records. And to discredit them because of the form they take would essentially be to admit that we know absolutely fucking nothing about pre-Cortez Mexico. So he's like, take it or leave it. Like, if you don't even entertain the idea that this stuff could be accurate, you might as well give up trying to learn any of this history, <laughs> which I kind of like that attitude. He's like, I don't know what to fucking tell you, dude. Um, just don't be racist. <laughs> um, 
So the author says that we do have records in these two forms of the apparition story. He says that he himself has seen and studied the indigenous pictographic annals dating back 300 years before the Spanish conquest. And in particular, he presents at the liturgical inquiry, a notebook containing notes. <laughs> he wrote a notebook containing notes. <laughs> no fucking way. <laughs> Look, there's a notebook and inside, guess what? Notes. Notes. <laughs> <laughs> the notes are in the book that he presents. And the notes say in the notebook, um, no, the notes were taken in the 16th century by a student who was studying the pictographic record of the apparition. And he claims that the indigenous people have kept a record of these events. I already said that. And he claims that he has personally heard the songs that the priests have sung about the event. So he quotes dozens of other priests and scholars who either are indigenous or who have studied the indigenous culture extensively, who all corroborate his analyses. Um, and the last thing I'll say about this source is that Becerra Tanco makes a point of saying that it's fitting that Our Lady appeared to Juan Diego, a poor peasant and a recent convert, because Matthew 11 says, I confess to thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them to the little ones. I really liked that. So I, like I said, I'm going to leave out a complete analysis of the final source because one, I'm running out of time, and two, it's mainly just a synthesis of the first three, which I've already done. But basically, the final main source was written in 1688, so like 20 more years after the third one, by a Jesuit priest named Francisco de Florencia. A really important note that he makes is that the bishop in the apparition story, Juan de Sumaraga, never wrote about any of these events, and none of his contemporaries did either. The story never appears in contemporary letters and reports by missionaries. Um, it just doesn't show up. And so that's a big source of a lot of doubt about whether these events really happened. Like, if they did, why wouldn't the bishop be shouting it from the rooftops? Um, like, why wouldn't the missionary priest be reporting it to Spain for like a pat on the back or like more money or whatever? Like, what's going on? So we don't know for exactly certain, but we do have a theory. Um, what we know is that the focus of the bishop's <laughs> bishopric, um, look, the bishop was bishoping and the focus of the bishopric um, and the religious climate directly post-conquest was a very scary time. It was full-blown inquisition mode, so part of his responsibilities included seeking out evidence of leftover pagan worship among the Aztecs. And the hill of Tepeyac was originally used for the worship of a pagan goddess. Shocker, we've seen that before. Mm -hmm. um so like let's think would the bishop want to be associated with the unauthenticated story hearsay of a native man building a shrine at an old pagan holy place with his permission with the bishop's permission before the apparition was given papal approval probably not um to me that explanation makes total sense for why he was silent about it and not talking to his superiors about it 
Um, I think he was waiting for approval so that he couldn't be punished or even excommunicated for his involvement. That would be my guess. So to wrap up, um, the significance of Our Lady of Guadalupe can't really be overstated in terms of Mexican national identity. She represented back in the 16th and 17th centuries and continues to represent today the promise of salvation to the indigenous people. She is their mother. Um, she even looks like them. She has brown skin and dark hair, not the blonde, blue-eyed European Mary. And so she represents the reconciliation of old world and new world. And whether you believe in the authenticity of the apparition, this story was the tool that allowed for like the overwhelmingly successful colonization of New Spain. Juan Diego was beatified in 1990 and canonized in 2002 by Pope John Paul II, who traveled to Mexico City to preside over the ceremony. At the ceremony, I didn't know this, but I found it really cool. Um, places of honor were given to people with indigenous ancestry, many of whom wore traditional dress and sang traditional songs. The fabric of Juan Diego's tilma, which is imprinted with the image of Our Lady, is still displayed in the Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe on Tepeyac Hill in Mexico City. The shrine is the most visited Catholic pilgrimage destination in the world, at one point being visited by over 6 million people in one weekend. And that is the story of St. Juan Diego and the apparitions of Our Lady of Guadalupe. That was cool. Cool. Just some weird dude who saw a lady on a hill. She's like, I need you to build me a house. He's like, cool, I'm going to live in it, though. <laughs> cool, I'm moving in, though. She's like, uh, mm, that wasn't really the deal. We'll see when we get there. <laughs> Let's, we'll circle back. <laughs> So I'm giving hair on my tongue. Thank you, Hannibal. Um, <laughs> I'm giving apologies that my story is short um, and odd. Odd is the best word that I can use to describe it because I couldn't find anybody to write about this week. Hmm. Uh, no matter how much I Googled or how many rabbit holes I went down, like anybody that I found that had been killed by the Catholic church either was killed more for being like a heretic than mm. for being like a witch, or there was so little info like readily available about them, um, that it was using up all of my time to keep digging into that person and getting nothing out of it. Yeah. Or it was both. Like yeah, both of those problems. Yeah. Again, those those records, there were no records. There was no place to put them. Yeah, it was uh immensely difficult to find somebody. Um, and I'm drowning in work right now, and I didn't want to waste what few hours I had to research continuing to try to find someone. So I'm gonna talk about witchcraft in Mexico, a town that is known for its witches, a folk saint important in Mexican witchcraft. So I'm actually going to talk about its saint today. Ooh. Yeah. Um, and the Aztec goddess that the saint is affiliated with. Cool. So we're doing like a, like a Bridget style thing like last time. Yeah. Cool. Um, I did not know a lot about witchcraft in Mexico outside of Olympia. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I only know about Olympia because I watch it as ASMR, which is like the weirdest <laughs> thing. Like, I watch your indigenous practices as ASMR. Um, but it, it does <laughs> have kind of like a colonizer feel to it, I will say. But I could totally see enjoying watching that because I actually do know what that yeah. is. Yeah, but it's being done by like native peoples and like they're profiting off of my YouTube views. So like good for them. <laughs> right. Make money off of like my weird addiction to right. needing that calming chant in the background. And it's not um, like a blonde girl named Jessica just like cracking an egg on her forehead or whatever. No, and it's not like a <laughs> blonde girl named Jessica going down to Mexico to get it done either. It's like yeah. Mexicans getting it done by Mexicans. Right. So. And it's all in Spanish too. And I don't watch it with subtitles. So like half the time, I don't know what's going on. I just mm. enjoy it for what it is. Yeah. Um, For any of you who aren't weird, um, like <laughs> me, <laughs> and don't know what Libya is, um, it's just a cleansing um, they whack you with plants, um, and they rub you with an egg, which sounds weird, but it's cool. It is cool. Um, there are chants. Sometimes they spray stuff on you with their mouth, or they put herb and water mixtures in your palms for you to rub in, mm-hmm. like on your face and all kinds of stuff. It's mm-hmm. neat. Everyone that I watch is a little bit different. Nobody has the exact same tools or does things in the same order or says the exact same thing. So right, kind of down to the practitioner, but it's relaxing because it's very methodical. Yeah. Um, in half of the videos that I watch these cleansing are they're offered in markets or like on the sides of roads, uh, sort of in the same way we have people shine shoes or get massages and stuff to make extra money on places that get a lot of foot traffic. Mm-hmm. So this type of spiritualism is normalized. Like it isn't always behind closed doors. Okay. Um, But because it's for profit, you do get people who say that these people, which is are con men and hacks just out to steal your money, pretty much no different than how people see fortune tellers and palm readers here, especially in places like New Orleans. Right. Uh, there are so many there because it's lucrative because that's half of what people go down there for. I mean, yeah, if I were ever in New Orleans, I've never been, but if I did go, that's 100% what I would do. When I take you someday, I'm definitely going to take you to get your palm red. Um, they're going to be like, oh my God, you're still alive. And then I'll (laughs) die right that second. It is kind of hit or miss down there because it like has so many uh, people going down there for that. Mm-hmm. I had one woman who definitely was just telling me what she thought I wanted to hear. Cause she yeah. was telling me like, you're going to meet your soulmate and you and him are going to have kids <laughs> and get married. Like, mm. and it's like, wow, he's a dude and I get to have kids. No, no way. way. <laughs> just what I wanted. <laughs> And her tarot deck was just a normal deck of playing cards. So it was mm. really <laughs> strange for her to be reading like the like ace of spades and being like your soulmate. It's like mm. looks like a deck of playing cards to me, but okay. Right. <laughs> um, the other dude was cool though. He was really spot on and I liked him. I went back to see him another night. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, the documentaries and books I read this week said witchcraft or at least folk or indigenous practices are common in Mexico. 
I've never been to Mexico though. So I don't know how true that is. So whenever I make statements about things in like the modern day, I like to add that little disclaimer that like, I'm not gonna tell you what your country is like. <laughs> right. They're like, we know. <laughs> <laughs> We're aware. Or they're like, you're entirely wrong. You're way off base here. Right. <laughs> Um, I don't know if it's all of the country that this is prevalent in or if it's just sections of it, because there are sections of America that are definitely more spiritual than other sections of America. Right. Yeah. New Orleans is a section, but especially out West, like I was surprised whenever I drove to California, like how easy it was to find crystals and how every museum gift shop I came across was selling them and like every street vendor had them. Because around here, like, you're not going to find, like, Labradorite, like, anywhere that you go other than, like, the McCanda shop that we have. Right. You're not going to just see, like, a witch at a farmer's market. Yeah. But if you went, uh, when I was driving to California, like, every single museum gift shop had Labradorite and every person on the street was selling it. I'm like, that is not, like, a common crystal. Right. Um, So, yeah. I don't know if Mexico was like us where it's just in pockets and somebody's making a blanket statement or if it really is just popular everywhere i don't know yeah which clap (laughs) which clap is what brings us together today (laughs) it is though yeah it is Uh, uh, witchcraft in Mexico is called brujeria. Do not come at me for my inability to roll my R's. I took French for a reason. This is going to be egregious the way that I say brujeria today. You can just, you don't have to roll it. You can just pronounce it like a D. Like you can just say brujeria. No, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I believe you because I physically cannot pronounce French words. So I believe you. Yeah, it, it just, it I can't do it. I just can't. <laughs> um, to quote one of the sources that I read, though, one of the books um, about brujeria, it must be understood that the term brujeria is a generic word that refers to the syncretic practices and native rituals that are defined by a particular subculture, by a language of the group, and by the geocultural region. Therefore, brujeria is practiced on the island of Puerto Rico, in the lowland Amazonia of Peru, and the Sonoran Desert of Mexico, and in Chicago and throughout the U.S., all in different forms. Mm. So anything I say today about witchcraft or brujeria isn't going to be a blanket statement. Mm-hmm. For example, go ahead. I was just going to say, have you seen that TikTok of the little girl who is like in the backyard, like making a little like potion or whatever out of like sticks and mud like kids do. And her mom calls out. She's like, hey, what are you doing? The girl just goes, brujeria. <laughs> <laughs> no that's hilarious it's so good her little like tiny voice she's so confident that <laughs> anyways beautiful i loved it anyway uh <laughs> uh one source said that the inclusion of the devil which i saw in documentaries about the town i'm going to talk about later um it's not ubiquitous so um they made it sound like that was very much part of brujeria, but that's not how everybody practices it. That's just okay. that group of people. Yeah. Um, brujeria has some similarity to Santeria, voodoo, Palo, 
They are not the same thing, though. Different origins, different beliefs, different mm. rituals. I see the words get used interchangeably a lot, especially Santeria and Brujeria are flopped around. Yeah. Um, practitioners in Brujeria are brujos or brujas, which is just male and female forms of the same word, which mm-hmm. shaman, sorcerer, however you want to translate that word. I don't think they're very picky. Mm-hmm. Brujeria is an interesting mix of indigenous practices and Catholicism, which Mm -hmm. we've seen a little bit in the show before, like mixing witchcraft and um, Christianity. Yeah. They take it to like a whole new level in like a really cool way. Love that. So on the one hand, you have the cleansings and the offerings and the altars and the rituals, amulets and herbs and spells, and even different colors of magic, depending on the situation. Like it's Mm. more than just black magic and white magic, which I Mm -hmm. thought was really interesting. Yeah. And then mixed in with all of this, you have prayers and the cross and saints. Uh, People will make altars for saints like Mary. So uh, Brujos, Brujas will worship um, Mary mm-hmm. um, and they will visit these altars and these sites and ask for things and they'll pray. They'll leave offerings and locks of hair and pictures of sick family members for healing. So it's really just interesting that there's like no harsh line separating like Christianity from these indigenous practices. They're very much just part of one another. Um And I didn't write this down, but I saw pictures of like priests and stuff would come to like pray for people or give mass and stuff. And they would be surrounded by like these um, indigenous elements and Mm -hmm. they kind of just went with it. it's like, you know what? I came here and they have this weird altar, weird altar set up. And I'm just going to pray here. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. Yeah. And they have folk saints, which are unofficial saints that are incorporated into their practices, mm-hmm. like Santa Muerte, um, who they'll pray to and invoke in rituals and leave offerings for in the forms of things like cigarettes, candy, fruit, and booze. Which, nice. Yeah, it's like a nice bouquet. Sign me offerings. up. Right. It was very strange when I came across that, though, because I'm used to offerings being like, oh, yes, like some f- just berries and some nuts and some milk with some mm-hmm. sugar in it. They're like cigarettes, <laughs> booze. <laughs> Santa Muerte is like, where's my cigarettes? <laughs> is that offensive? Probably. Where are my palm malls? Right. <laughs> Juan Diego, where are my palm malls? That's the title. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Oh my gosh. Perfect. It's a perfect synthesis. Yes, it is. Why'd I go like this? I went like this for synthesis. <laughs> Just cup it. Cup, cup <laughs> <And> it. Squeeze. <laughs> what are we doing? I don't know. It's fine. I never know. It's fine. So Santa Muerte, or Holy Death, Saint Death, has a lot of other names. She's La Santissima, or La Santissima Muerte, to show respect, often during rituals. 
Um, she's La Nina Blanca, the white girl, Senora Negra, black lady, Senora de las Sombras, which is Lady of the Shadows, mm. and about a dozen other names that I'm not going to force myself to butcher because I just picked the ones that were like the easiest to say. So mm-hmm. nice. <laughs> left the other ones off. But mm-hmm. uh, translating some of them, she's like the bony lady and the skinny lady and stuff like that. So nice. Yes. Uh, Santa Muerte is extremely recognizable as a folk saint. She's a skeleton in a robe, usually holding a scythe. So mm. very grim reaper. You mm-hmm. cannot miss her. You yeah. would not happen upon an image of Santa Muerte and be like, hmm, I wonder if this is Mary. Like, I cannot right. figure out who this is. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, some historians argue she has indigenous roots in Aztec culture. Others argue that she does not. Either way, she's extremely controversial as a saint. The Catholic Church does not like her. I can't imagine so. (laughs) (laughs) No. Um, in 2013, a cardinal publicly condemned her, and then in 2016, a couple years later, Pope Francis went to Mexico and said, quote, I am particularly concerned about those many persons who, seduced by the empty power of the world, praise illusions and embrace their macabre symbols to commercialize death, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm, I which see. Is a reference to Santa Muerte. Yeah. Uh, when I was reading, I found that most sources weren't unbiased when it came to Santa Muerte. Either the source said, oh, she's fine. She's just a folk saint. Like, don't worry about her. This is what you need to know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, or the source was like, her worshipers are bad and terrible and she's evil and you should have nothing to do with her. Like, yeah. These symbols that are so tied up in national identity, mm-hmm. like her and like Our Lady, there's no extricating them you know and people feel strongly one way or the other about them for sure they really do um but one of the reasons that people have this this negative association connotation um part of it i read is that like it's this praising of death which catholics aren't necessarily fond of they're like (laughs) we don't necessarily want to celebrate like death like we're all about like eternal life and stuff right uh not a huge fan of that Uh, (laughs) (laughs) right but maybe it's healthier like uh, on a national level to not be afraid of death you know uh, I'm just gonna think so. put that there. I don't mm-hmm. know. Just maybe. Just stick a pen in that. Yeah. Um, but also because Santa Muerte has a reputation for being a popular saint amongst criminals and cartel members who pray to her for protection and to kill people. Mm. I read people battling in comment sections about this, and I did come across a comment that I agreed with, and it was saying that. Everyone, you know, saying that everyone who venerates Santa Muerte is bad just because some bad people venerate her is like saying everyone who worships God is bad because some people, bad people venerate God. Yeah. So uh, I think among the people who worship Santa Muerte, there's maybe like 10 to 12 million people estimated. And they're like, not like a small fraction of that is like the drug trade and cartel members. Yeah, of course, as, like, North American, like, white people, we're going to demonize that. Like, of course we are, you know? 
Absolutely. And I know that I didn't read too much into it, but it talked about one reason Pope Francis denounces it is he is super involved in like the drug trade and wanting it to stop. And like, it's one of his focuses. <laughs> I thought you meant like he was a cartel. <laughs> I was like, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's a hot take. No, but I mean, among the like <laughs> issues that he cares about the most, like the drug trade in Latin America is something that he cares about deeply. Yeah, um, I could definitely see that. So them attaching themselves to this saint, he's like, like, don't attach yourself to this figure. Like bad people do that. Right. Um, and we can't elevate her in any way because so many pe- bad people are attached to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked about us white people demonizing things. I vaguely remember reading about um, Breaking Bad depicting Santa Muerte associated with the drug trade. Yeah. Uh, I've never watched Breaking Bad. So. I haven't watched all of it, but I mean, I could see that definitely. Yeah. So Santa Muerte gets associated with some people and then everyone's like, yeah, we, we can't be doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but worship of Santa Muerte has become more open and popular in the last century. Like it is exploded in the last century. Uh, it is still not widely accepted though. And she does stick out as far as saints go. Um, like even among the ones that you've talked about on the show, as weird as they are with like their Play-Doh legs and their dog heads. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't find any stories of Santa Muerte ever being a person before her death and sainthood. So she's always just been like this dead figure. Um, Yeah. So she feels very goddess-like instead of very saint-like for that reason. Right. Uh, I I wonder if it's the same, based on the same saint that that the hill was that the hill used to be like a worship site for do you remember what the did they mention like what um indigenous goddess she could have been based on um i'm going to talk about her oh okay in in a paragraph sorry um you're fine it'll be interesting if it's the same yeah i'm gonna look it up while you continue one bruja said Santa Muerte is who ferries souls to heaven and who greeted Jesus when he died on the cross. So hmm. that's some of like the mythology. That's about as much of the mythology as I could actually find on Santa Muerte. Because hmm. um, for the most part, it's just like, oh, she is this figure that we pray to and she's a saint. I'm like, okay, but what's the, the story about this lady? Right. Like, I don't know. Like, maybe, <laughs> maybe she's not know. Jesus. That's right. all we got. Yeah. Uh, um, I can see how, because of this goddess, like quality, Santa Muerte gets aligned with or conflated with a particular Aztec goddess. Uh, both women are connected to death. They have similar appearances and they're both tied to the day of the dead, depending mm. on who you ask. I've read that they're the same figure. I've read that they aren't and they got smushed together on accident. And I've read that they have absolutely nothing to do with one another at all, which <laughs> What's the theme of my research this week is no one agrees about anything ever. Yep. And it's partially because of that whole records thing you're talking about. Uh, Like we don't have a lot of records for things. Yep. And it just leaves a lot of room for people to disagree. Yep. 
uh, the quote unquote goddess Santa Muerte is tied to is Mictica Siwat. Not the same. Uh, Interesting though. Yeah. Uh, Mictica Siwat was sacrificed as a child and grew to adulthood in the Aztec underworld called Mictlan, where most people go when they die. And I say most people because you got to think like Norse mythology warriors for example have their own special place it's yeah. the same kind of thing in aztec culture that certain people have their own special place and i think it was that warriors and women who die in childbirth go to the same place interestingly enough that sounds exactly right to me yes they're on the same level i think the aztec had it correct yeah um Micklin has levels or as a documentary phrased it it has layers and then all i could think of was shrek <laughs> so the aztec underworld is an ogre and if you take anything away from my story today let it be that onions have layers ogres have layers the aztec underworld has layers we all have layers mm-hmm mm-hmm um, the underworld is sort of like this decathlon, but with nine events, and I couldn't find um, a version of that word with nine being the base. Okay. <laughs> I know that it's probably like Nov, like November, but if yeah. I Googled it, it's like, this isn't a thing. It doesn't exist. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I tried. It exists now, Novacathlon. Sure. Good sure. enough. A Gathlon, um, where you have to keep surviving each level and like passing through to the next. Damn. The first one, like you got to befriend the spirit dog to show you passage. But if you were a dick to dogs in life, like he's not going to be your friend. So I'm loving this underworld. Yeah. But another level is like fucking jaguars eat your heart. Like that's mm. the whole level. <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is wild. Um, this is the non-warrior underworld, and I think it should be the warrior underworld. This should be where, like, Brock from your PE class who runs, like, the three-minute mile and laps you four times while mm. you're, like, struggling for breath. This is where he should have to go. Right. Um, he should have to traverse, like, these dangerous mountains that crash into each other while you're trying to cross them, and he should be the one who gets mauled by jaguars. Yeah. Um, because I would go to Micklin and I would tap out because what are they going to do? Kill me again? <laughs> pet the dog and then immediately tap out. Exactly. Did they going to send me to a deeper underworld? I don't know. I wonder. If I tap out of that one, do I just keep going down? Like how far does this rabbit hole Deeper go? and deeper. I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting question. I'm going to care in the whole situation. I want to <laughs> see your manager. Can I please speak to Santa Muerte? I'm over this. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Miklan is ruled by the quote-unquote god of the dead, Miklan de Kutli, and his wife, Miktika Siwat. Neither of those names have any of the letters that you think they do. Yeah, I believe that. Miktika Siwat is M-I-C-T-E-C-A-C-I-H-U-A-T-L. Not a single letter. I cannot visualize that in my head. It looks like Mictacasihuatl, but it's not. Okay. It's Mictacasihuatl. And the first time I heard somebody say it, I went, mm, no. Um, 
Aztec words scare me, uh, mostly because I did that thing um, as a kid where I decided how the names of things were pronounced in my head mm-hmm. uh, because no one ever said them out loud. And I married that pronunciation and I committed like 15 years of my life to it. Yeah. Um, and then I heard it said for the first time in my brain, just through an error about the whole situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a problem that a lot of kids who read a lot of books have. They're like, okay, yeah. I'll just, this is my own little world. So I get to make it up. And then it's like, no, this is real life. Yeah. Um, I, I did the same thing with the word epitome. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah. I knew that epitome <laughs> was a word out loud. Yeah. And I knew that epitome was a word in a book and I could <laughs> use both of them in context. Um, but it <laughs> took me many years to realize that they were the same word. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because I thought that epitome, the word you said out loud, was spelled more like epiphany. Um, turns out I had an epiphany and that was not <laughs> correct. You had an epiphone. <laughs> yes. It was incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that day in class, I just stared at my book. I'm like, these two distinct words have been the same word my whole life. Existential crisis. It's Waller all over again. <laughs> <laughs> Wallered all over the place. <laughs> oh, Lord. Back, back to my point. Back uh, to the underworld. Back to the underworld. Uh, Miktika Siwat is associated with the dead. She is depicted with flayed skin and a skeleton face. So similar to Santa Muerte, but different in that Mixtaca Siwat isn't a full skeleton. Okay. Um, I also called uh, Mixon. I hate when I see both of their names together because my dyslexia wants to say them the same way. Um, I called uh, Mixon Tecutli and Mixon. Their names look so similar written next to each other. It looks mm-hmm. like I wrote the same name twice and I didn't. <laughs> um, I called them God and Goddess, uh, quote unquote, God and Goddess. And it's because a few sources said that they're Lord and Lady of the Underworld. Yeah. Um, and that they were just recognized as being like part of the faces of life. But when Christianity came to Mexico, they got rebranded as a God mm-hmm. and a Goddess. Okay. Um, a lot of things got rebranded. A lot of things got changed and mixed, like we saw with Brujeria and Folk Saints. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that changed, mixed, got rebranded was the Day of the Dead or Dia de los Muertos. Mm-hmm. I am not going to claim to know a lot about the Day of the Dead. In my reading, I came across a lot of historians who disagreed about the origins of the Day of the Dead, uh, which I didn't even know was up for debate until I started researching i didn't know that either yeah it's a whole big debate um i don't know enough about the region the aztecs or the christianization of mexico to be able to even determine who i agree with more like at least when we talk about like witchcraft in europe i have enough context at this point i can decide who i think is correct yeah who i'm on the side of this i got no clue everybody's opinion is as valid as everybody else's because i i don't know what's going on Mm -hmm. Um, The Day of the Dead has this long, complicated history that's steeped in politics and colonization, and I don't have all of the context on the colonization and the politics 
just the centuries of history to know anything. Yeah. I cannot make a judgment call here. So some will say that Dia de los Muertos has ties to the Aztecs and to Mixtecasiwat. And the people in that camp mention Mixtecasiwat being venerated at a specific time of the year, a time that was moved by Catholics when they arrived to coincide with All Saints Day and All Souls Day. Yeah. But instead of erasing Mixtecasiwat's veneration, like put my holiday on your holiday, you know, that thing's done in the past and we just talked about, like, put my shrine on your fancy hill. Yeah. Um, Mexico blended it with Catholic Hallowtide instead. So it didn't disappear. They fused it. Got um, it. And this created Day of the Dead. Okay. As we know it. Other historians say that Day of the Dead doesn't have indigenous roots at all. And then it resembles European practices much more than it does native Mexican practices. Mm. Okay. Like practices that you would find in Spain and like other countries, the way that they, uh, what they celebrate with and like the skull imagery and things like that. They're like, this is much more European than it is um, Mexican. Okay. Um, And they're saying that holiday was essentially branded as having indigenous roots for nationalism purposes. So. Mm. So that's the political aspect. Yeah. And they're saying that it was pushed by a very specific guy that I know absolutely nothing about, a political movement that I know absolutely nothing about. Um, So I can't speak to how true that is at all. But because the records from that period of time are so murky, it's all left to like context clues of like, oh, well, we think that it's indigenous because we can look at the like fragments of this other stuff we have and say it's similar. Or, you know, we can look at the lack of stuff that we have and say that it's not and then it resembles this more. So it's just a lot of historians disagreeing with one another. And I guess they do. I cannot tell you how Day of the Dead really came about, but I can tell you some tie it to the Aztecs, and it's definitely tied to All Saints and All Souls Day. And it's easy to see looking at Day of the Dead with its celebration of the dead and the skulls and the spirits, how some people do associate the Day of the Dead with Mictacasiwet and Santa Muerte and involve those two in their celebrating of the holiday. Yeah. It'd be very hard to have a holiday that's nothing but like skulls and stuff and you don't involve like the people with the skull faces. <laughs> right. The skull face people are like, um, excuse me. <laughs> I just <laughs> like to know where's my invitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, another celebration. And this is my very cheap attempt at a segue. Um, do you like it? It's terrible. I love it. It's a festival the first Friday of March or the last Friday because I got conflicting info held in the city of Karemako, a festival called, and here's a bunch of words that I'm going to fuck up really bad, <laughs> like a bunch of words I'm going to fuck up really bad. So the festival is called the Congreso Nacional de Brujos de Karemako or the Fiesta de Ritos Ceremonias. Y I cannot say this word for the life of me because I always put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Uh, Artisanias magicas. So that's the rest of the phrase. But mm-hmm. I, I always want to say that word wrong. Um, or it's called La Noche de Brujas. Okay. So, 
Cool. Um, I'm not going to translate any of that for you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. Um, what you should gather is that it's a festival of witches. It's the it's, night, the night of the witches. Yeah, that's the whole thing. It's just the witches are gathering in this town. Love it. Uh, articles I read said the festival has become very commercialized over the years with Olympia for sale and vendor stalls with amulets and that their music and dance performances. But the festival gathers at a hill just outside Caramaco called Ceremona Blanco and comes together primarily for a mass cleansing so people can rid themselves of the past year's bad energies. Mm-hmm. I need to do that. Mm-hmm. Catamaco itself is located in the Mexican state of Veracruz in southeastern Mexico, and people might recognize it as the place where the movie Apocalypto was filmed Mm. in part. Yeah. Uh, There are some interesting National Geographic documentaries that focus on Catamaco, where you get to meet modern brujos and see rituals, and they show white magic versus black magic, and they even mention red magic in one, so like I said, there are a bunch of different colors. I think there's like blue and all kinds of stuff but the like mentions of like oh if you have a like a neighbor problem you use this color of magic Mm. if you have a romantic problem use this color of magic Mm. cool but white and black are very self-explanatory white is like cleansing good stuff black is like wishing death on somebody right uh the documentaries were kind of confusing to walk into as my first introduction into brujeria because that was like the first things I watched before I read anything mm-hmm. um, because it definitely comes off as magic is like this big business here in Caramaco, but this is how magic is in like all of Mexico. Um, and then I had another source tell me a week later in an offhand sentence that Caramaco incorporates the devil into brujeria and it's just Caramaco that does that. <laughs> and it's like, Oh, so Hmm. the practice is specific, (laughs) not general. Because like every shrine that they went to, like there was the devil over it and like people were using him in rituals. I'm like, oh, so they just really normalized like the devil in Mexico. Okay. (laughs) The rest of Mexico is like, no, no, no. (laughs) we we didn't do that. We don't claim them. (laughs) It's just that really weird town down there that makes a lot of money from witches. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's, again, some of the dangers of like brujeria being practiced so differently by everybody is that you walk into something with zero context and you're like, oh, that's the way everything is until you run into new information that tells right. you that's wrong. Yeah. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, just be careful whenever you get into especially indigenous stuff i'm terrified when i talk about indigenous stuff um because i never want to say anything wrong even though i I say wrong things all the time uh anyway interesting documentaries you can find them on youtube they're cool um and with that i'm gonna wind down and say that that's my weird disjointed story about brujeria and santa muerte and mexico siwet and caramaco I liked it. My favorite part was the spirit dog. Um, but I also liked the part where Pope Francis was in a drug cartel. <laughs> you know, that might be my favorite part. <laughs> the sad thing is, whenever I wrote that, I was like, it sounds like he's in a drug cartel. I need to rephrase this. So I rewrote the sentence and then I still said it the wrong way. I do that all the time. Sorry, I'm, Francis. Not no, really. I'm glad you said it that way. It was a nice laugh. 
Um, and who knows? Maybe one day we'll find out via an investigation that he is, in fact, a, part a cartel. Of the yeah, I was prophetic. I mean, with other popes that we've had in the past, I would not be surprised at all. That would be a really interesting documentary to watch, though, about Pope Francis being in the drug <laughs> Right. <laughs> I would watch that. I would watch it for sure. That was good. I did not know most of that stuff. So thank you. You're welcome for the spirit dog. <laughs> yeah, and the jaguars. To eat your heart if you die. So don't die, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Just hold on. How do you like calm your kid down? Like we have the stories of like, oh, you get to go to heaven and you'll be with heaven. your grandma again. You, what do you tell like your Aztec? Like when you die, a jaguar is going to eat your heart, but it'll be okay. But it, you'll love it. Yeah, because then you'll get to the final ring of the underworld and then you'll just dissipate. Then you'll like have nothing. to like fight to the death with this the half skeleton lady or something. <laughs> just it's it's terrible. All of it is terrible. <laughs> Look, you know, yeah, it is really bad. It's it's the worst. Um <laughs> yeah, I don't know kind of like the whole cultural significance of that kind of afterlife what if your dad dies and you're like dad's getting his heart eaten by a jaguar (laughs) right now it's like yep sorry to say he shouldn't have died just the way it goes the way she goes um that was a weird mix but i think it worked i think it i think the um syncretic aspects of religion are always so interesting Mm-hmm. like Haitian voodoo and Santeria and all that stuff. I'm just so interested in it. Yeah, I am super fascinated at it. And I can't, cannot wait until we talk about uh, like New Orleans voodoo, like Marie Laveau, all that kind of stuff, because that's going to be fun. I mean, you could do it next time if you wanted no, we're not going to okay. do it until I can take you to New Okay, Orleans. and we will record live from the graveyard, from Marie yes. Laveau's grave. I've been there. It's cool. It has a bunch of X's on it. I love the graveyards in New Orleans. I am obsessed. They're like little cities yeah. just on top of the earth. It's so weird to wander around them like mm-hmm. without anybody else around because I did that for a little bit. Um it's very, very strange. Yeah. Have you seen the movie Easy Rider? I don't think so. Um, it's like a 70s or 60s, I think, movie about the these guys who are riding co- cross country on motorcycles. It doesn't really have a plot. It's just kind of like a psychedelic movie. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a scene where they're in New Orleans and they uh, they drop acid in a cemetery and they have like a horrific trip and it is like a haunting scene that's like super good like if you just looked up like easy writer cemetery scene you would find it um i'm gonna do that it's really good i mean for like a 60s movie which i personally love that um era of cinema (laughs) (laughs) why did i say it like that i love that era shut the fuck up okay (laughs) enough out of me um 
Thank you so much for listening. We have new listeners in Argentina and Thailand. Thank you for listening to our nonsense. Yeah, hopefully you don't leave after this this episode of nonsense. They dipped their toe into our nonsense. And and they said, said, no, this is murky. (laughs) (laughs) This puddle puddle is lukewarm (laughs) and murky. (laughs) And I don't feel comfortable. (laughs) Understand. Understandable. Understood. Mm -hmm. Um, If you need to get in touch with us, you will find our information in the episode description. And we will see you next time. Thanks be to God. Blessed be.